when the picket lines went up at all the downtown stores to keep black people away, there were white priests and nuns on the picket line. And I remember standing on a corner and seeing that and thinking that there's another way to be Christian. This was the real deal. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with writer, with teacher Danny Duncan Collum. He's the author most recently of the novel White Boy and is a professor of English and journalism at Kentucky State University in Frankfurt, a contributing editor and columnist for Sojourners magazine. And I'm going to get to some other credits in a minute. Danny Duncan Collum. Danny, thank you for talking with me today. Glad to be with you, Steve. You know, I just have to start by saying, if I get you from what I read and what you've written you want to change the world. Yeah. Yes, that was kind of the idea, yeah, really, <laughs> since I was like about, you know, 14, 15. Yeah, that was the aspiration. It took, kind of took a while to figure out how that, you know, matched up with, you know, with a job and a livelihood and stuff. But yeah, that's the idea. You have found some ways to link those things together, and I'm really wanting to talk about the motivations for some of those. Just reading a little bit about your novel, White Boy, which takes place back in the early 1960s at the time of the Freedom Writers, you have a fictional character who's a young white boy who gets caught up in that. Does that tie into those very same inclinations of yours to want to make a difference? Yeah. Yeah, I think that novel was kind of me imagining what might have happened if I'd been born 15 years earlier than I was. This is always my impulse to change the world, as you say, has always been tied up with my understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus expects of people who claim his name. That's been the case since I guess I got my first inklings of adult faith, you know, what was going to be my adult faith starting when I was about 14. Tell me about how you were raised and uh, whether it was you or your whole family actually changed denominations at some point. Yeah, that was just me, Yeah, not in terms of my family of origin. I was raised in uh, Southern Baptist Church in uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, a medium-sized town. It was about 20,000 when I was growing up in the Delta region of the state of Mississippi, which is a uh, up in the northwest corner of the state, a you know, floodplain between the Yazoo and Mississippi, some of the richest farmland in the world. There's a book about the Delta that calls it the most southern place on earth, <laughs> the most southern part of the most southern state. And that's where I grew up. So I was raised in terms of faith, raised in uh, First Baptist Church, Greenwood, made my profession of faith at about age 10, which was kind of what was appropriate in uh, Southern Baptist culture and had my believer's baptism, made profession of faith during a revival week at the church when we had a traveling evangelist who kind of prodded us on into that. But it was a genuine, yeah, it was a genuine religious experience, and I had a genuine faith. That was what I was, that I was raised in from as early as I can remember. I don't ever remember not being a Christian. Did you think the, that God yeah. knew and was concerned about you personally at that time? At that time, yeah. I had no question of that because that's you know, that's what I was taught, and that was kind of the whole idea of the religion I was raised in was that Jesus died for your sins to save you from hell. The um, evangelist who came through every year 
our preacher, to a lesser extent, other preachers certainly that I heard, would try to make the possibility of hell a very real prospect, so that the idea that Jesus was going to save you from hell was really a providential gift, you know, because you didn't deserve it. It was a providential gift that had your name on it, like a Christmas present. And I think that was the faith that I walked the aisle for when I was 10 and was baptized for. I think that in later years, never lost my belief, but I think that my sense of a personal God who was personally interested in me certainly did wane and maybe even disappear for a while there. But yeah, that's, that, that was my religious upbringing. Now, the other important piece of that is that I was born in 1954 in part of Mississippi that I was in was a major battleground of sorts, a nonviolent battleground, well, you know, in the civil rights movement. Mm. There's kind of nonviolent on one side and you know, violent on the other. But that was all going on as kind of the backdrop to my childhood. And I was 10 years old in Freedom Summer, 1964. Greenwood was very much alive with that activity. There were demonstrations downtown. It impacted me because I couldn't walk to the downtown movie theater one Saturday because there was a demonstration at the courthouse and I'd have to and I had to walk past the courthouse to get to the movie theater. <laughs> the that inconvenience. Was, that, was, that, was what it, that was what it meant to me at the time. <laughs> but I knew all this stuff was going on and I think the impact of the significance of it was impressed upon me. As in the next few years, by the time I came in 1968, I was 14. The other thing I was going to tell you about was in, during those years, the Civil Rights Movement years, the other thing that was kind of important in the formation of my sense of faith. One of the things the Civil Rights Movement did in Mississippi was uh, church visits. They would have biracial, you know, black and white together delegations of Christians who would visit, usually clergy actually, who would visit big congregations and all big, all-white congregations try to come in and join them for worship on a Sunday morning. And in almost every case, I know of only one case where they weren't turned back, they were turned away. You're not here to worship, you're here to make a political point, and we're not going to let you in. And so they were turned away. And ushers were posted outside the doors of churches to prevent that from happening, to turn them away before they could get in the door. My home church, First Baptist and Greenwood, did that. They had ushers posted outside the door. And by the time this was going on, I was old enough to know what they were there for and to understand that that just didn't mesh with the God incarnate in Jesus that I'd been uh, taught about, you know, the one who loves all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. It just didn't work with that. And so that was the beginning of the path that I've really taken the rest of my life, 50 years now, really. You mentioned at the beginning of coming to what you called your adult faith. Yeah, yeah. In 1968, the black community in Greenwood, there had been no progress. All the laws had been passed in, you know, 64, 65. There had been nothing had changed in Greenwood in terms of desegregation, in terms of jobs, voting rights, and so forth. They decided they were going to have a boycott of white-owned businesses. The clergy, local clergy, were the leaders of this. And one of the main leaders of it was actually a white guy who was a Catholic priest, a Franciscan, who has served the a Franciscan mission to the black community in Greenwood, called St. Francis Mission. 
And Father Nathaniel was one of the three clergy who were the leaders of the boycott. And so when the picket lines went up at all the downtown stores to keep black people, anyone else who wanted to be in solidarity with them, which was, of course, basically nobody, but the, uh, to keep people away, to say, no, don't shop here until they meet these demands, these basic demands for human rights. There were white priests and nuns on the picket line in their clerical garb and nuns' habits. And I remember standing on the uh, on a corner on the main commercial street downtown and seeing that and thinking, there's another way. An option you hadn't seen before. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, this always gets me a little bit. But yeah, that there's another way to be Christian. Yeah, that this was this was the real deal. You know, this is what it was about. And that was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot I could do about it then, but that's where I was headed from that moment on, including the fact that I, 20 years later, 19 years later, became Catholic myself. So that was the beginning of everything. And, you know, the sense that what I believe about Jesus is not just about keeping me from going to hell. It's about making this world more like the kingdom of God in any way that I can. And with confidence that the kingdom of God is there for me, I'm part of it, I grow into it, I complete that when I die. But right now you start. Eternal life begins now and then extends out into eternity. And you do that by how you treat the least of these, by creating a world in which the last can be first, in which the hungry are fed, the, the captives are freed all the things that are in the in the Gospels. That was kind of where it started. Had a um, youth minister at our church the summer after my 11th grade year who led a Bible study on the Gospel of Matthew. And we never got past the Sermon on the Mount that summer. <laughs> but, uh, we did get through the Sermon on the Mount, which is, people do not know, it's just like the first, that's like five, six, and seven. It is, all three whole chapters. We there. didn't get very far. But that was enough. I feel like that was another experience where I had an encounter with, oh, this is Jesus. This is that guy they've been talking about all this time. Here he is. He, I, I had a sense of him as a living person who was on earth for a purpose, that has a set of purposes that he was wanting to carry out, and through us now, we're here to carry those out. And that was another experience where I felt like God reached down and did something to me, you know, told me something. Uh, everything else I've done has grown out of that moment. Sojourner's Community and the, the magazine, is, that's what you know, the mission has all been totally about. Religious experience is something that I think really we could talk about in groups, but has to be experienced as an individual. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, those particular key moments where your eyes were opened or, or you, you felt something reach you. And yet there's this balance of the individual experience and what we do as community. In a a recent comment you made about a, a new movie called Come Sunday, you mentioned someone who maybe had gone off, they got some inspiration from God, but maybe went off the rails just a little bit. You talk about having a balance uh, by having mm-hmm. some sort of established organization. And will you talk mm-hmm. about that tension between the individual and the community experience of religion? Yeah, no, you're, you're getting to my Catholic self there, because that's uh, <laughs> really, um, 
Okay, I was for 10 years was a member of Sojourner's Community, which at the time it was an ecumenical Christian intentional community, kind of a parachurch organization, sort of with we lived together in households, worshiped together, and so forth. And the idea of that was really to kind of recreate the first century church. And, mm-hmm. and it really, I mean, a lot of good things came out of that. We did some good things, we did some really stupid, stupid things. But after several years of it, I said, geez, you know, this is like we're just constantly reinventing the wheel, trying to have this perfect thing, and it's not perfect. (laughs) It's not going to be perfect. The idea of having connection and accountability to a larger body, that kind of made it make a lot of practical sense to me. I mean, I was drawn to the Catholic traditions through... Catholic social teaching through the life and writings of Dorothy Day, who's uh, kind of, if she gets to be a saint, she'll be my patron, I suppose. But I also think this, this sense of, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not always right. And I have to be humble enough to admit that I don't know everything, and I may not always be right, and submit myself to a larger entity, something that I believe was established by Jesus' appointment of Peter, you know, to, to be the first among the disciples, to guide us in what's true, what's sin, and what's not. Jesus said, whoever sins you hold, hold against them will be held, and whoever sins you release will be released. You know, that's the authority that the apostles were given. Yeah, by the time I, I was confirmed in the church, I really wanted to submit myself to that larger body, that universal body, and be connected to it and have the strength of that connection as well as the humility, collagen that I needed. Mm-hmm. I, need, I needed guidance. Going back for a minute to personal religious experience, yeah. are there ways that you feel God has guided you down a path, whether you knew it at the time or not, or, or that you have felt this was God working in my life? Yeah. I've already told you about two of them. Probably the other big one, and this gets back to when you asked me about a personal God that cared about me personally. When you asked that, I said I kind of drifted that lane that slipped away from me. The other thing that was happening during those same years from beginning about the age of 15 was that I developed problems with alcohol. I became a problem drinker pretty early on. It wrestled with it and tried to rein it in, but it would always come back. And it was recognized friends of mine had said things to me as early as like when I was 20. Why don't you think you might have a problem? Mm. Um, To which I, of course, at the time said, nope. (laughs) Uh, But when the time came, when I was 33, I suppose, yeah, that I I really just couldn't dodge that anymore, that there were going to be consequences. And I had a choice to make, and I chose to try to live without drinking, to be sober. The way one does that, the way that was shown to me and that has worked for millions of people, begins with an admission of powerlessness. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable because of that, because I can't drink like other people. I can't take two drinks and walk away from it. It always ends in excess, so I'm powerless over it. That's made my life unmanageable and a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, can take away that mental obsession and physical craving. And 
therefore I'm going to surrender my will and life to the power of that God as I understand him. That's uh, where you begin if you want to be a sober person. So I think that I had been a religious person, I had been a believing person, but through my 20s I think I mostly had kind of an intellectual faith, a set of beliefs about how the world works. I believed in you know, the revelation through Jesus, but I didn't have a sense of personal relationship with God and personal connection. would come in like a distant radio station. It would kind of still come in every once in a while for a minute, you know, but then the, the static would block it out. And the static was that there was this thing between me and God, which I wouldn't surrender, mm. which was I was dependent on something else to make everything all right and to make me feel better and to block out the world's problems. I wasn't turning to God for the help to help me in dealing with life. As it came to me, I was putting something between me and life and between me and God. So that was a decisive turn where I really, I think from that point on, from the time that I made the decision to, to live sober, I've been developing a personal relationship with God and a God who I know has acted in my life in very specific ways. And looking back, I see how that was happening all along. But I definitely I recognize it when it happens now, I would say. My religious practices, I mean, I go to, I go to Mass every Sunday with my family or without. I go when I'm on my own to go on holy days, go daily when I can, which is almost never. But I look forward to a time when I'll be able to do that. But really, my daily spiritual practices don't come from the church. They come from the literature of the recovery program that I'm working. My practice of prayer and meditation is really based. That doesn't contradict my Christianity. It supplements it. And that's what really brought the personal component to life for me. I'd like to ask, if you don't mind, when you do meditate, when you have your personal observance, are you seeking more to be simply in communion in the same space with God or with the Spirit? And then maybe one question further than that, do you feel that you receive answers or guidance, and how does that happen for you? Ooh. Yeah, it is, to me, it is mostly about listening, mm-hmm. about being you know being still and making trying to make room for uh, God to communicate to me whatever there is I guess it's a lot it's like fishing people sit by the side of a lake with a pole in the water for hours and sometimes days and nothing happens most of the time yeah, but then every once in a while, you know, the, the line starts to jump, right? Uh-huh. And you can't make it happen. I guess I've never really been a fisherman, so I guess there are ways you can, you know, there are techniques and stuff. But that's the analogy that I think of is that it is mostly waiting and nothing happens. But you have to be there. If you're going to get struck by lightning, you got to go stand out in the middle of the thunderstorm. You got to be there. You got to be where it can happen to you. To me, that's where you have prayer and meditation is. I mean, I have people that I'm praying for, intercessory prayer, and it's always that God's will be done for those people, which I know God's will is 
all good for them. So I just pray that God's will be done, not that specific things happen. And then the sense of guidance, I feel like I guess when I've gotten that, it pops up. Well, one time I remember it happening sitting silently in church, just not during a service, just sitting there in prayer in an empty church. But other times it's just like, I walk every day up and down. We live in the country, and I walk up and down the hill we live on every evening. And sometimes things come, I'll get a sense of presence and guidance just pop up. As an idea? An idea in in your mind? Yeah, or a thought that I didn't think. And again, this is not like, not an every year thing even. But, you know, it it doesn't take many of these to make a believer out of you either. But yeah, I feel like I've had... Thoughts present themselves in my mind that I didn't think. Do you mind sharing an example of something like that? Well, one of them was just, you have everything you need. Hmm. You know, obviously there was you know, a lot of anxiety about material things <laughs> around that time in my life. But yeah, it was just that phrase. Another time it was just, something good is going to happen. Well, something good is always going to happen. You know, so, I mean, it was not really, but it was just what I needed to hear at, at the time. It was like so encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had like direct things like, things seem to me direct anyhow. I had a period in my life when I was having trouble finding a, a full-time job. We had two kids at that point. I had felt like I'd done everything that I could possibly do. And I had been the one thing I would not done was surrender to the fact that I might have to be a high school teacher. I could probably, at that time, have gotten a job where we were living as a high school teacher. I resisted that. I didn't want to do that. Finally, things transpired that what seemed like my last chance for another job fell through. I had to take three education classes at a nearby university to get the teaching license. I'd already taken the standardized tests that you have to take for the teaching license. I enrolled for the three classes and was off on a little business trip for my part-time job. I was going to stop at the university on my way home and return in the tuition check for the three classes that I had to take. Before I left on that trip home where I was going to stop and pay for those classes, I got the call from the job that I thought I hadn't gotten. The person they offered it to turned them down, and they wanted me. How could God make all that happen, make the person, I I don't go there. (laughs) What I know is that I had to surrender. I had to give up all of my agenda, all of my self-will, in order for something good to happen, in order for God to do for me what I couldn't do for myself, for God to act in my life. I had to be out of the way. Those are the things, those are examples of the kind of things that make me believe that this thing is real. Thank you for those examples. Because of the way that you have chosen to use your gifts of writing and teaching, particularly for Sojourner, also I've seen Mm uscatholic.org, read some of your articles on culture there and how they intersect with religion and religious thought. Is that a sense of mission you have? Is that an outgrowth of your faith, a way to accomplish something you want to? Uh, Yeah. When I... Joined the Sojourners community in Washington, D.C. I was 23 years old. 
they had a magazine. That was the main thing they were known for. They had some, some neighborhood ministries. We lived in a poor neighborhood in, in D.C. And I did other things for the first year. And in the second year, I got tapped. Somebody said, hey, I think this guy could write about movies. We want to start running movie reviews. So I got tapped to write a movie review, and that turned into a career. Interesting. Uh, that's how I became a religious journalist. Uh, was, I didn't know what my thing was to do in the world. I mean, it obviously it was, my thing wasn't is to be a writer. There weren't examples around for me. Nobody ever, had ever told me. You know, I'm from kind of a working class background in terms of my family history. So people like us don't become writers. It's just not one of the things you become. So when they thought I could go to college and make good, well, you can be a lawyer, you can be, you know, something like that. And that wasn't me, but I didn't know what was me. And that opened a door, and that's what I've done. So, you know, 30, uh, 40, my Lord, 40 years later now, I'm still writing for the same magazine and some others. Yeah. So it was, it was what I could do. It's what I stumbled into. It's where I found what I can do. So it's kind of a both hand, I guess. It, it sure wasn't a plan. You know, the plan was to change the world in the name of Jesus, though, and you know, so that's where I stumbled by following that plan. I stumbled into kind of a vocation as a writer. Besides your novel, you're the author of three nonfiction books: Black and Catholic in the Jim Crow South, Rising to Common Ground, Black and White Together, and the editor of African Americans in the Spanish Civil War. Because of where you grew up and maybe when you grew up. Mm-hmm. Is that a sense of mission you've had to yeah, to talk? I, I mean, God may be no respecter of persons, but uh, here on earth, there are lots of respecters of mm-hmm. persons. Yeah, and that was everything in the in, in in my formative years. My high school integrated when I was in the tenth grade, mm. and that was like they combined the the black high school and the white high school in town were combined in the middle of the year. We went home for Christmas break and came back to a school that, that was 50% black and 50% white. So those were the formational events of my life. And that sense that racism, white supremacy, was this kind of underlying evil in Mississippi culture and American culture. That really kind of, once you saw, ooh, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that's not, there are no races. Human beings are human beings. They're just accidental I have blue eyes, you have green eyes, he has black skin, accidental things. Once those scales come off your eyes, you see, you can start seeing a lot of other things about American society. That was my entry point, certainly, that I had saw what the society I was born into and grew up in was founded on a lie, and that lie was unmasked at a very key time in my life, in my adolescence, and I've felt an obligation to keep doing whatever I can to try to, you know, to try to right the wrongs that have come out of that, that came out of those years of slavery, segregation, white supremacy. There's a fellow named Will Campbell. If people haven't heard of him, he's been dead for a few years now. People should look him up. He was a Mississippi Baptist preacher, and the key insight that I got from him, he said, we're all bastards, do what you can, need to do with that. But God loves us anyway. That was Will's key insight. And that was race, class, the civil rights worker, and the Klansman were both what Will said they were, (laughs) but God loved them anyway. 
And when black people in the civil rights movement started saying, hey, you white people who've been trying to help us out, maybe y'all ought to go work with your own people. Will took that seriously and started ministering to Klansmen. And he said that the poor people who were the most vicious racists among the white people in the South were always the poorest white people. Interesting. And that they clung to that white identity because it gave them some sense of importance, and it was the only thing they had that made them better than anybody else. They were on the bottom, except for the fact that they could look down at the blacks. And that was encouraged by the power structure in the South. They were egged on in their violent racism. It was a divide-and-conquer strategy at key moments in Southern history. So I think the fact that my people, the lower-income, lower-education white people that I came from, were also victimized by that system of white supremacy. When that clicked into me, then, yeah, that's, that's really the whole picture to me, is that I write, write and think about uh, race and class and how those factors have played out in American history because of where I come from and, and who my people are and what my people did to some of their darker-skinned neighbors in those years, yeah. Danny, what should I ask you about your journey of faith and belief that I don't know to ask? Or is there something that uh, you think, well, I want to be sure I get around to this? Oh, okay. No, just um, I sometimes get asked, how can you be a Catholic? How, how can you, how have you managed to stay a Roman Catholic? But I don't get that question so much since Pope Francis. I got that question a lot during Pope Benedict. Mm. I would say that the, um, to me... My life of faith has been mostly about finding the presence of Jesus in the world around me. And I've told you about some of the times that, that I found that, that Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew, when I went walked down the aisle when I was 10, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the actions, the action for justice that I've been part of, doing what Jesus put us here for. The other thing, time it happened was when I walked into a Catholic church when I was 32 and attended a Catholic Mass for the first time, really. It came to the consecration of the bread and wine. The priest says, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ. And I had this overwhelming sense of, he's really here. You know, this is the guy <laughs> yeah, hmm. uh, that I've been following around at a distance for all these years. He's here. So the, I think the presence, the real presence of Christ in the, in the sacraments of the Catholic Church has been an incredibly important to me in all the years since I became Catholic. And that's, I guess, the one other thing that I would say. That's a powerful experience. Yeah. Danny Duncan Collum lives in rural Shelby County, Kentucky, with his wife, Polly, and the two of their four children that still live at home. Danny Collum, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thanks, Dave. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, author and teacher Danny Duncan Collum. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith.
This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Do your religious or spiritual beliefs impel you to action when confronted with injustice? Have you ever had to surrender completely to God's will before you received an answer or guidance you'd been praying for? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Josie Stone is a longtime medical professional, totally fascinated with interfaith activities and always seeking new experiences, a Virgo who definitely cannot leave dishes in the sink overnight. John Olson is a liver of life, free spirit, and consistent oddball. Dennis Bray taught school in California and now translates TV shows into Spanish for a living. Victoria Khalil is an opera singer, a chocolate lover, and loves everything about Mexico. Well, I think when Mr. Collum began to talk about civil rights, it was like a jolt to me in that I arrived in the United States in 1963, which the civil rights all was going on in the South at that time. And I knew nothing about the United States. I didn't even understand its currency, its culture. And so it was a huge learning experience. But when I read or saw on our TV what was happening down in the South, I was just it was almost convulsed with not understanding what on earth could be happening, that people could be like that to each other. I suppose I'd only probably seen three Nigerian students that came to England to our university in my whole life. So I didn't understand racism. I didn't understand black versus white. But hearing him talk about that brought that all back like a movie to me, that those were things I had to suddenly struggle with. Somebody brought up in a close-wrapped religion like the Anglican faith is. I mean, we even thought of Catholics as being foreigners. To be here in the United States in the middle of all of this and not understanding it, unbelieving it could be happening. And yet, because we were in the military, meeting people who were from the South that were on the same base as we were up in the North, that would talk about how they had been brought up to believe that, that this was how they thought things needed to be, the separate bathrooms and no dining, you know, at the counter. And they felt that that was okay. So again, I had to struggle with that as well. So just a fascinating review of my life in the 1960s. I'm going to follow up what Josie was talking about. She grew up incredibly diverse in comparison to me in North Provo, where if a Wyoming license plate drove through, we thought we were diverse. <laughs> I, I ended up teaching third grade in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I wanted to create a classroom of acceptance and tolerance and I gave it my heart, and I found myself back in Baltimore on the East Coast for a job interview, and after the job interview, I decided to take a city bus to a Major League Baseball game, an Orioles game, and I looked around, and I was the only white person on the bus, and the rest of the bus was African Americans, and my initial reaction was fear, and I immediately pinched myself and said, what a hypocrite. And people were so kind, and it was a real lesson that we are all the same. I'll uh, follow up on what uh, John just mentioned, and I was also uh, thinking about what Josie said. I don't know if it's okay to say that on the panel here we're all white. You know, regardless of our various backgrounds, we do have that in common, and I think that there is something that um, as we discuss issues of race 
and social justice, I think it's difficult for anyone who has not experienced racism or has not experienced discrimination to really understand what that means to somebody who has experienced that. I think of myself as having grown up in a fairly diverse community in Northern California. My parents were both raised in San Francisco and and going to visit my grandparents in San Francisco while I grew up actually in a rural suburb of San Francisco. Going to visit my grandparents in the city, as we always said, I felt that I grew up sort of exposed, I guess, in a way to different cultures. And I do remember growing up in the 60s and, and being vaguely aware of, of the unrest and the, and the things that were happening in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in those days. Despite the fact that I grew up that way, I, at some point in my life, I had to really ask myself the question, am I or do I have racist tendencies? And the reason I began to ask that question is because I was teaching, I was teaching high school, and I wanted to make sure that I was teaching in a way that was fair and equitable to each of my students, regardless of their background, that I wasn't somehow favoring some or discriminating against others. And I felt that that as a teacher, I needed to make sure that even if I didn't think I had those tendencies, I wanted to make sure and sort of do a self-evaluation and see if there was something inside of me that wasn't quite right in that sense. And I don't profess, and I think for anybody, for any one of us to say, oh, I'm not a racist or we are not racist, I think is dangerous to say that because it almost it almost makes us, it's almost like saying, oh, I understand what others go through when they're discriminated against or, or whatever the situation may be. And so I, th- I think it's really important to look inside and, and, and I'm so inspired really by Danny Duncan's columns story, you know, that he at a very early age felt and understood that um, what Jesus was teaching, the gospel, was something very different from what he perhaps was being led to believe growing up in the South. I thought that what Danny Collum said about the civil rights movement was really fascinating. I'm actually going to kind of jump to another topic because I did not, I was not alive during the 60s, so I don't have a lot of personal experience with that. What I wanted to talk about, what really struck me was what he said about admission and surrendering yourself to God. He talked about a time where he was looking for a job and finally decided that he was just going to have to be a high school teacher, even though it's not what he really wanted to do. And then in the nick of time, he got this call for another job. And it reminded me of an experience of my own. Married student housing is extremely hard to come by. (laughs) And so my husband and I live in a basement of an older gentleman's home. Some friends of ours were moving out and offered their apartment to us. And and it was a lot less than what we were paying. And so we thought, oh, maybe we should move. We would be saving a lot of money. But it was a really hard decision because we love where we live. We love our landlord. It's There are so many perks of our apartment. And so we struggled for a while trying to decide. And I struggle in general with making decisions. <laughs> I have a tendency to be indecisive. And so for a while, we just couldn't decide. And my friend was asking me and needed to know. I had been praying about it, but finally I really... I mean, it was really the 11th hour kind of, and and so I was praying about it a lot, trying to find an answer. Is this right to move here? And 
finally, I just thought, I think I need to take action. So we made the decision to move and we actually invited another couple who was going to get married to look at our apartment. And as I was showing it to them, it just didn't feel right. I felt weird and I kind of felt like I didn't want to move. And so later, after more praying and thinking and and pondering, was talking with my husband and we both kind of expressed this the feelings that we've been having that we should stay. And so I told this other couple that fearing that they would be angry because basically we had offered them our apartment. But it was really interesting because I called my friend and she said, oh, my fiance and I were talking and we actually didn't see anything wrong with the apartment at all, but just didn't really feel right about it. And so in the end, we decided to stay and it's it's been a great decision. And I just think it's so interesting. And he kind of mentioned this with his story that often you just have to get out of the way and let God do his thing because everything works out in the end. And even though in that experience, I felt like it was so late in the game and I just I just needed to make a decision because I finally just prayed and, and, and really submitted my will to God's. I felt like that's when I received an answer. I was going to follow up on uh, Victoria's story and thoughts on surrender. I drove down into southern Utah into the San Rafael Swell in the middle of nowhere, probably 40 miles from the nearest paved road and camped out, and the next morning I, I woke up and my car wouldn't start. Nobody around, probably the nearest vehicle was 40 miles away, and if anyone who knows me knows me well, I just decided to sit and eat breakfast and figured that maybe the car would start after breakfast, and it was still continued to be dead. and. I was in a predicament. I was gearing up. I'm going to hike 40 miles to I-70. And I kneeled down and said, you know, I, I give up. I, I, I'm a mechanical poop for brains, Heavenly Father. I need some help. And <laughs> out of nowhere, I had the thought. I was given the thought. Ex- excuse me for saying I had the thought. That's, that's yay, John. I was given the thought to get a wrench and hit the battery really hard. (laughs) I'd never done that before and got the wrench and hit the battery and car started right up. Total surrender. (laughs) There was another area that um, he uh, talked about, which is one that fascinates me totally, and that is when you are living and having your faith based on you as an individual or whether you're part of a community. And I think that's something that challenges all of us. And it doesn't really matter what faith you are in either. I think it's a challenge. But it's different in that in your faith, you know, are you the one who goes off into the woods on the weekend and says, well, I am spiritual. I don't need to go to the cathedral or to wherever to pray. 
but then at the same time, do you miss out because you're not meeting other people of like ideas and faith and so forth? And uh, I think we experience that too in our interfaith organization right here in Salt Lake City, and that we have, I think, 48 different faiths in this valley, which is pretty surprising to everybody. There are some more predominant than others, but what do you do? Do you, how do you integrate with other faiths, still maintain your own faith, but still accept their faith? And how do you translate that? I think it's a bit of a mystery how we do that. We do know from experience that going to meet people of other faith does not make you think your faith is any less. In fact, it's the opposite. It strengthens your faith. As you might go to the Hindu temple on a weekend and you see the degree of sincerity in that faith for those people, then you then introspectively think about what your faith means to you. And so you grow by that. But how do you do the individuality and the community piece? We need to retain the community piece because that's how we help other people, how we deal with social injustice, how we be able to provide for others and do the things that Christ taught us that we needed to do and is an example of what we need to do. But at the same time, we also, as an individual, want to have these experiences as he describes so definitively about recognizing that God is there for him. When he had his problems with alcohol, for instance, he he grew into knowing that God was there working with him and that he would ultimately succeed. So just a fascinating back and forth. I think it's something there's no answer to, but I'd be interested to hear what everybody else in the room said. Yeah, just following up on on Josie's comments, I, I think it's clear when we see Jesus, for example, he spent 40 days in the wilderness completely alone tempted by the devil, and then went back and was very much with the people and healed them and served them. And I think you can see this in other traditions, the Buddhist tradition, the, the idea that you need time to meditate, to be with yourself, but you cannot forget your community, the people who are around you. It is a back and forth. And perhaps it really depends on where we are in our lives at particular times, or maybe a, a, a time in our life when we need to be alone, when we need to isolate ourselves to some extent. Maybe for a day or maybe for an hour or maybe for a year. It just really depends on that person's, where that person is in their life at that point. And I think in my life I've seen, and I'm really speaking for myself, I guess. I'm not trying to preach. I'm just saying I know that I've seen that in my life where I have needed that time. I can remember at one point in my life when I was not particularly active in my faith, and I remember going to the beach on a Sunday, just walking on the beach on a very early Sunday morning and seeing the seagulls. And I thought, this is the congregation. I'm going to hang out with the congregation today, this flock of seagulls. You know, maybe I needed that. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. Some people might judge that and say, well, that was, I should have been in church that day. Now, at this point in my life, I very much feel the need of for community and to, to be with my congregation, to, to communicate with them and to share faith and to hear what they have to say, because I know that in hearing what they have to say, I learn and I, I grow from that. But there have been different periods in my life where I have felt I just need to be alone and to communicate and, and, and to meditate and try to hear what it is that God wants me to hear. There have been other times when I've felt, you know what, I need to stop being selfish. I need to go and, and be involved in a community. Going off of that comment, I think that attending a congregation, attending church, has become more to me, not just as I've gotten older, I have realized that 
I personally need to attend church, not just for myself, but also for others to, to lift others and to make friends with them and love them. And I think that that's one of the important things about having this community worship, because I think first and foremost, we need to worship personally on our own, have that connection with the divine. But I I think the value, one of the things that's valuable about worshiping as a community is that you strengthen each other. There's strength in numbers and we don't need someone else in order to have faith. We lift each other, I guess. I'm going to follow up. I wrote down while Danny talked accountability to a bigger organization entity and it kind of made me angry because I'm one of those that needs to be in the middle of the desert or on top of a mountain or on a river. And I really believe in fate and hearing what Josie said followed by Dennis, followed by Victoria, pierced my soul, the comments. And uh, the anger's gone and (laughs) makes me want to strive for the balance in community and that personal faith. So thank you to all three of you. (laughs) This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Danny Duncan Collum. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. Danny Duncan Collum uh, spoke about the idea of fishing, you know, that having spiritual experiences is, is kind of like fishing, that most of the time you're just sitting around waiting for something to happen, and then every once in a while you'll get a bite or something you know, will happen. You could go on for hours or an entire day and not have that bite, you know, and, and, uh, or you may. I can relate to that because I think that um, most days of my life, I'm not feeling particularly, um, you know, ecstatic or, or inspired or I'm not having any kind of personal enlightenment necessarily. But I, over time, I can look back and, and see, wow, all that time that I was just kind of trudging along, I actually learned quite a bit during that time. And, and now I can look back and say, wow, I, now I understand something much better than I did 10 years ago or, or whenever, just because of the experiences that I had. And I think that I feel that for me, that's how God has worked in my life. It hasn't been these great revelatory experiences. It's been more, although I have had moments where I have felt very inspired. I have felt, I have felt God's presence in my, you know, in my life, it's really been more of a long-term experience where I can look back and and sort of see how I was being led, how God was taking care of me, even though I was completely unaware of what He was doing in my life at the moment. But over time, I can see, wow, He actually led me to this point where I am now, and I would never have thought to get to this point if God had not been sort of taking care of me in spite of myself. I think he made many profound references to that topic you just discussed, and also not knowing everything. And I think sometimes we tend to think we do. A little story, I was abruptly brought to my senses because on Sunday, the sermon at our church was the story from John about 
it's Christ who was asked by a woman who was from a sort of another cultural level if he would heal her daughter who was very, very sick. And apparently he replied to her, we must take care of the children first and the dogs will come later. <laughs> and she turned around and said to him, even the dogs can eat the crumbs from under the children's table. Mm-hmm. And I never understood what that meant. I'd heard it since I was a child. But to understand that he was really transformed by her comment in saying that everybody needs to be treated equally. There is no mm-hmm. level of a person that the other person has to be below that and you can help one and not the other. It was like a revelation to me and I thought I should have known that, you know, 60 years ago and I learned it just this week. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved his references in fact, I loved his whole presentation, his references to constantly be, be learning, learning new things and not feeling that he knows everything, that these things come to you through life and you learn from each one of them. So I loved when he spoke about Will Campbell and the comment, we are all bastards. And it made me think of a, a, a quote from the musician Leonard Cohen, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We're all bastards, <laughs> and, and uh, Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father love us unconditionally. I thought about also what John just mentioned, you know, and I, it's so true. I, I, I have felt like I was completely, at certain times in my life, felt worthless, felt that I didn't have purpose, felt that maybe uh, I wasn't adding value to this world in some way, and I think that one of the greatest I guess revelations for me as I've gotten older now is just this understanding that it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to to not live up to a particular expectation of that somebody else might have. It's okay just to be me. I'm not saying that 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 I can just rest on my laurels and not try to improve myself and not try to strive to accomplish things that I want to accomplish, but it does mean that where I am right now today, it's about as good as I can get. And, and I have to understand that God actually, just as you know, John just mentioned, God loves me and accepts me exactly for who I am. I had a recent conversation with my new son-in-law, actually. We were talking about how, oh, his, his wife, which is actually my stepdaughter, and I have uh, in between my own children and stepdaughters, there are four of them, and they're all older. We now have two grandkids. We've noticed that as we've brought up our children, there are all these little rivalries. And even, even now, our children are all in their 20s, and they still are jealous of each other. They all think that we, my wife and I, they all think that we love the other one more than them. You know, And I had to explain, we treat every child differently according to how we believe that they need love from us. But we love all of them equally. And we may have preferences in the way we treat them in certain ways. I might take one to a ball game and take the other to a concert. But that doesn't mean that the ball game was somehow worth more to me than the concert. It was just we are loving them in different ways, but we love them equally. And I'm just a human being. And so I think of when I think of how does God think of us? You know, he may think of, yeah, okay, Josie, you know, likes certain things. She might like to go out to the concert, and maybe John likes to go river rafting. But I'm going to be with them regardless of where they are. I love them equally. And that's something that I think has been helpful to, for me to understand now as a parent and a grandparent. I can't put myself in the place of God, obviously, but it does help me, I think, to understand a little bit about how God sees his children. 
That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Josie, John, Dennis, and Victoria, and especially to Danny Duncan Collum for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in Good Faith.